Welcome back to another episode of Schoolhouse Rocks. I'm Chuck Sipe, Assistant Superintendent here for Roxbury Schools. And today we are going to engage in a conversation which is really a third part of our MTSS, Multi-Tiered Systems of Support, um, series of podcasts. And I'm happy to be joined by two of my esteemed colleagues here from the Roxbury Public Schools. So I would ask them to introduce themselves. Hi, everyone. It's Alyssa Belladino, the Pre-K-6 Humanities Supervisor. Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Zegar. I am the Assistant Principal at Lincoln Roosevelt School. All right, so I had a little difficulty getting started there. So in the, in this third episode of multi-tiered systems of support discussion, we're really going to focus on hammering out what is tier one, right? Um, and then we're going to start to transition near the end of this conversation. What is tier two? How do you move from tier one to tier two? Our previous episodes really focused on our first one, which is what is MTSS? Just kind of a generalized overview of multi-tiered systems of support in schools and some of the things we're doing here in our school district. And then we had a second episode that Ms. Bellardino and some of her colleagues who have really been focusing on some of the data gathering um, and universal screening tools. Um, and we highlighted Dibbles 8, which is um, a grant-funded project that Ms. Bellardino and her colleagues have worked to really secure. But today we're going to focus more generally on what are those tiers, um, specifically tier one, and then transitioning to tier two. And then we'll record future episodes uh, a little bit more in depth on tier two. And then when tier two needs additional support, how do we transition to tier three? So let's start there. Tier one, tier one really focusing on about 85% of the student population, right? That's kind of the general framework for what tier one does. It's focused on providing high quality, academic, emotional, social, behavioral supports for all students. Um, generally, classrooms are developed and um, populated by a wide variety of students who have a wide variety of needs. And so that tier one structure really focuses on supporting all of those students to the best of our ability, recognizing every student needs something unique, something individualized. And that really is more of the norm of education, the cookie cutter, everybody in rows, everybody do this one thing. Those days are over. Not to suggest they worked or didn't work, but those are the days we remember. We've just learned a lot about students, what learning, teaching and learning is really supposed to look like since then. So um, I would invite you both. Let's dive deeper into what is tier one. Sure. Sorry, I went in front of you. <laughs> Would you like to go? <laughs> no, it's okay. Go it's, okay. What a, it's what a gentleman does. <laughs> we're, we're so I, I apologize yes, yes, for that. Right we both kind of went right. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think kind of doubling back a little bit on what was said earlier uh, by Dr. Sype is kind of looking at what a normal classroom should have in it and what instruction should look like. So I think sometimes when people think about differentiation, um, that different students, you know, are at different levels when they're in the classroom, or uh, there might be a, a way that's more familiar, familiar to them um, to be able to gain information. Um, we think of like trying to create like individualized lesson plans, and that's not really what any of this is. The tier one's about a regular classroom and the type of structures you can put in to be able to make sure that every student is successful. So every student's different um, and comes to information in different ways because the way humans learn is they take information that they already have um, mixed with the information that's coming in and, and they try to form connections between the two. Um, that doesn't mean that kids have learning styles. It's not like kids you know, are visual learners or they're kinesthetic learners. There's really not much evidence to support those things exist. Hold on, How, I just want to stop you. 
Talk real quick, give us a tangent there, because the common understanding is that learning styles exist. You're either a visual learner or a kinesthetic learner. And while that research was very prominent two decades plus ago, it has been kind of falsified, right? And, it, it you know, we're kind of 180 degrees from where we once were, whereas it's not really the acceptable nomenclature anymore. So can you just give us a quick tangent? Sorry to cut you off and ruin your train of thinking there. Oh, perfectly fine. I, I will I will hammer against learning styles all day if, if need be. Let's just do a quick... Yeah, no problem. <laughs> ...two-sentencer. Um, learning styles, like other things, education, seem like they're common sense, but um, a lot of times things that feel like they're common sense, um, though they're really attractive, aren't real. They just feel like they should be. Um, and there's there really was no evidence uh, for learning styles. And even though there's whole... Uh, you know, companies that are built up around the idea of learning styles, it it I think it actually limits kids. Uh, the research there it that has been done on constantly on learning styles has proved that there's really no evidence to suggest that they're real. That doesn't mean that you don't like movies, or that you know that you feel like you really were affected by reading a specific book. What what it really just means is that you made a connection in one way with that movie or you made a connection in some way with that book. It doesn't mean that you should read every movie from now on before you, you know, like, because you'll know it better that way. Like that's not how humans work. And a lot of this comes down to the fact that we now have a lot of neuroscience that can back up different parts of the brain that are activated. We were able to test, um, you know, kids and adults before and after they do different things. And, you know, there just isn't a lot of evidence to suggest that, you know, there are specific styles. That does not mean that students should be in rows listening, because that is not the best way for students to work with information. Remember, the idea here in tier one is for students to be able to, you know, come to new information and be able to work with that information. And how do people make connections? They do it verbally by expressing their thoughts, writing it down, um, being able to see it, interpret it in different ways, because what you want to do is you want to increase the amount of different types of connections that an individual makes with new material so that it can make the most amount of sense to them as they move it with the old material. And that's why, you know, when you really work with something, you know, when you leave a room, you remember what you were doing. I think a lot of us remember going into a, a classroom and like getting something one specific way. And while they were telling it to you, you were like, Yes, I got that. And the second you walked out the door, you were like, I don't remember anything that happened. And a lot of that comes down to the fact that you just haven't been able to make those connections. All right. I'm sorry to cut you off there. And so the back to meaningful differentiation in tier one. So let's get back to that because that's kind of where you were yeah. before I cut you off. Yeah. So meaningful differentiation is about creating space for students to do different types of activities to make connections between uh, former knowledge and uh, the new knowledge that's coming at them. And that can uh, be in a lot of different ways where you um, allow students ways to uh, dump like too much information in their head by giving them organizers. You can have them maneuver between and, and build a discussion. You can have them in places where they're working in groups and the natural um, way of having your class work is within groups or we call like pod seating or things of that nature. Um, about when you establish breaks within a specific type of of where somebody's processing. I mean, humans can't really pay attention for more than like two and a half minutes to three minutes of like real intense like thinking. Um, you know, so like just talking to them for forty five minutes isn't going to help. 
uh, because at some point in time you just can't focus. So it, so tier one is about creating opportunities in that normal classroom to support all learners. And there's different strategies that you can enact that would benefit all learners, those who are struggling and those who are doing well, um, in both, you know, behavioral supports, academic supports, you know, social supports, things like that. All right. And so those, um, those elements that benefit all learners, we're going to call universal mm -hmm. techniques. So let's talk, Alyssa, I want to invite you to jump in there because I know you've done a lot of work. Um, not only with teachers and supporting them at the elementary level here in our district, but you've recently worked, which will come out soon, um, to design an MTSS handbook that members of our school district can rely on. So mm -hmm. the, that kind of universal structure in Tier 1, which is about building connections and making learning accessible for every student, has lots of aspects, more, more than just learning and academics. It includes social-emotional, mm -hmm. right? Something that you worked really well with um, as a teacher. So I want to invite you to talk a little bit more about kind of how the differentiation and connections that Chris just talked about really f cross the straddle the lines and kind of cross over between academic learning, social, behavioral, right? There's a whole bunch mm -hmm. of different pieces that need to go into there. Absolutely. So when you think about universal support and that tier one, we really think about being proactive and preventative. It starts with creating a positive, you know, school and classroom culture um, and really building relationships with our students to set the groundwork for that academic component, right? We know that we always look at the whole child. We have to make sure that they feel safe, that they feel comfortable um, and confident in themselves to be able to learn and grow each day. Um, so what our classrooms look like and the things that we do for all students include making sure that we are giving feedback to them when they're doing things that we really like that they're doing. Oh, you were a kind classmate to another student. You know, you followed expectations. Um, you had a great dialogue with someone else. So really encouraging those positive behaviors um, to really promote an inclusive atmosphere within the classroom. Once that groundwork is kind of set, then we could really build off of the academic support, right? So when we have small groups and conversations based on student strengths and their areas of need. Um, so any classroom that you know you walk into, you see dialogue. That, I think, is the biggest strength of tier one is setting the quality instruction and then allowing the students the choices, as Dr. Zegar said, to be able to interpret information the way that they know best. Go ahead. Sorry. You breathe. You were just taking a breath. I was I taking thought, a breath. <laughs> I, I, go ahead. Um, when you think about that, too, we talk about multiple methods of assessment, right? So how do we know our students are, are getting what we're teaching them? And that does look different for every student. They should be able to express their knowledge, their ideas in multiple modalities. Um, so that is, I think, a huge component that we need to consider is, you know, how do we know that we're meeting the academic, social, emotional, behavioral needs of all students? And what data do we have to support that? And that's where all of those pieces come into play where constantly, you know, teachers are, are looking at data, they're responding to data. Did my students get that lesson or that concept of what I was teaching them that day? They're looking at it through whether they're working independently, whether they're working with a partner or in a small group. Um, by responding to it, the goal is that they're pushing their thinking further, right? They're enriching what they've already learned, or maybe they're supporting um, the student in a different way, right? If you teach it the same way all the time and they don't get it, guess what? You have to change the way you're teaching it to best support that learner. Um, so tier one is all about screening, responding um, to the student's need and improving not only um, 
maybe your certain ways that you're teaching it, but improving the engaging lessons that you're doing, improving the conversations that you're having with students. All right, cool. So just to kind of bring this all back together, <clears throat> the tier, tier one focus is really about ensuring that every student, you know, rec first recognizing every student has their own unique circumstances, set of needs, mm -hmm. um, strengths, weaknesses, right? And so it's the responsibility of uh, uh, educators to design a learning experience and environment where all students have opportunities to demonstrate success um, in all of those areas, right? We often, we too often associate success with academics, right? Mm -hmm. And that is, that is, listen, that's an important part of what schools do. We don't want to diminish that, but um, we also need to provide students opportunities to meet with success and grow socially, behavioral, emotionally, right? Um, and one of the best ways that we can design that differentiation and that tier one support structure is by identifying um, what are we where, what are we going to do, how will we get there, and what will success look like when we get there, and as we design that three kind of question structure, and that that structure, I take that right out of the work of John Hattie. We had John Almerode, um, one of the gentlemen who is really well versed in his work, um, in in John Hattie's work, come and work with our staff. Goodness, it must have been six or seven years ago now. Um, those same questions already existed at that point. Um, but one of the things we need to acknowledge as educators is when we design the answers to those questions when planning lessons and planning our classroom environment and experience, recognizing that the answers look different for every kid, right? Or may look different for groups of, of students. And the harder part isn't necessarily that acknowledgement. It's coming up with an acceptance that that's okay. Um, and as you're listening, if you're not currently an educator and you're like, wow, that sounds really hard and really different than my learning experience when I was a kid, you're right. Um, and I think that one of the things that before we kind of transition it from tier one to tier two in this conversation, we, I would be remiss, I think we would be remiss to not acknowledge that it is pieces like this that make being an educator such a complicated profession um, because I'm not sure we as, as a profession do enough to educate everyone about what we do because... Mm -hmm the profession's gotten so complicated, right? We don't have time to do that anymore. And that's one of the things we hope to achieve here is trying to share an insight, kind of a lens into what we do in education, what we're doing here in our district, but also help listeners grow in an appreciation for the complexities and demands of being an educator in the 21st century. Because it, much like every other profession, you know, I don't want to diminish other other responsibilities. I think this, this work has gotten exponentially more challenging as, it, as we continue to know more, mm -hmm. right? And so in that tier one structure, Alyssa mentioned that in that process of where are we going and what will success, we need to monitor, we need to adjust as we go. And so a healthy combination of elements of instruction and experiential, experiential opportunities is the best for every kid. And so to kind of simplify what Chris shared in a very intellectual way, it's kind of like planning a healthy meal. Right, we can't have a plate full of protein. We also need to have vegetables and carbohydrates, right? There's, right, and so I think using that analogy is one everyone kind of understands. Mm -hmm. Too much of anything may not may be counterproductive, but mm -hmm. a nice healthy dose of a variety of opportunities is really the best way to go. And so when we think about learning, and you think about your child's experience, we think about designing what a classroom looks like. Making that that connection to a healthy meal, I think, is really helpful. Um, in the same way, right? Dessert is also okay. Right. That's fun. That's reset. Right. That's a part of the meal. Um, everything in moderation, everything in its place really helps pull everything together. So kind of tier one, again, focusing on 
really 80 to 85% of the student population. That's what research, current research is kind of telling us. But the reality is, regardless of how how hardworking and um, well put together, how hardworking the teacher is in designing that thing and how well it's working, the truth is, much like anything else, mm-hmm. it just isn't perfect for everybody. And so sometimes we need to... Um, try a different approach. And so we start to move into targeted small groups, mm-hmm. which is tier two. So let's get into kind of like, well, what's tier two? How would we know to make that transition, right? Let's start right out of the gate. It's not easy, right? There's not a line in the sand, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's blurry at best. Um, so what's tier two? Tier two is supplemental support, intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like, you know, research-based practices that help us solve small gaps. So let's talk about that. Tier two. What's tier two? How do we know when to transition a student? So when you think of tier two, um, you want to consider it being timely and targeted. Um, So tier two, as it could be with academic, behavioral, or social, is really a more intensified um, setting for students to be able to fill some of the gaps. The first thing that you have to look at when you consider like does a student need tier two support is the data you always go back to the data where is the struggle look at specific examples assessments um, of where the student is struggling when you think of like an academic component if the student has you know is performing low on say a unit test or on you know they're not understanding the concept that you did that day there's a difference between that right so if they're struggling in the moment that's a tier one support you're giving them. You're acting in the moment. But if there is a consistent struggle over the course of time, that is where we have to look at it and say, okay, what needs to happen? Um, In this particular tier two setting or intervention, um, students are are working in smaller groups, right? So you're shifting from whole class, core instruction to everyone to smaller groups of say three to six students who have a similar need. Um, And that's really important because, as we know, when you're in a room full of people, sometimes it's a little bit harder to pay attention than if you were sitting one-on-one or in a smaller group. Um, So students are receiving instruction or support within a smaller group. Um, It's You're increasing kind of the involvement of the skills that they're learning each day by working on the student, uh, working with the student, I'm sorry, who struggles on that concept multiple times a week. So it's not just, oh, you struggle, let's touch upon it today and you'll be able to get it. It's okay, now let's look at this and over the course of the next few days or the few weeks, let's see how you're progressing towards meeting that specific concept. Yeah, I mean, I want to um, come to this with, with, with a couple of um, kind of add-ons to it. I, I think sometimes we have the kind of like a deficit conversation a lot when we talk about things like tier two, right? Because kids are getting individual support. This isn't about a student... Um, being having a learning disability or having something where they, they cannot maneuver forward. And I think in some cases, parents get get scared because of, you know, additional supports that come in. Um, the conversation here is not the fact that there's something wrong. Um, what the, the conversation really is about, listen, the student excels in a couple of different areas, but there's some areas that they really need some support in. Um, and that support can help them get and, and level to the point where they, they won't find that struggling because if we allow struggling to compound, it gets worse, right? And, and builds frustration. Right, it builds frustration. And then kids don't particularly like school. Um, 
And this, you know, and these things can come in many different forms. Maybe it comes from, a, you know, a small group pullout to kind of go over some base, some base skills that they need to be able to be successful at really being able to demonstrate that they are getting the higher level skills. It could be something like, you know, working with other kids on social skills and how mm-hmm. to socially interact, you know, in, in role playing so that life can be a little bit easier when they're outside of school and they're outside of this testing setting where they can work and, and use those skills. So I think it's really important to look at this not as what's wrong here, but look at it as, okay, you know, we've watched a student in the classroom. We have some test data. Mm-hmm. You know, and we talk about data, 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 and we're kind of data-informed, not data-driven. Mm-hmm. We don't make kids little numbers here. But what we do is we, we look and we say, hey, I know how this kid's talking because I'm asking him to talk in class. I know this kid's socially interacting. I know this kid is uh, being able to explain their understanding of different things in different ways. And it, it seems like they're struggling and they need some extra work or maybe a, a different way of focusing on a specific topic. And they would benefit from a little extra time or some s- small group time um, on a specific subject to try to get them kind of moving. Because once you start to build confidence and, and a student sees that they, they can do this, then you know then they start to, to maneuver faster and it starts to help them pick up. And I, I think that's really the, the purpose here. And I really like that you focus on you know, I'm combining what both of you said. If, as we focus on more intensified supports, mm-hmm. um, focusing on skills and feedback based on data that we've collected, you know, Chris, you even kind of transition there into celebrating the strengths um, and growth markers for the student. Um, because one of the things that needs to be maintained is an attempt to help support that student recognize the importance of being in a school, uh, the importance of learning and growth as connected to their future. Um, And I think one of the things that makes that challenging is the constant comparison by the adults in the room, the educators, the parents, right, to their experience, right? And when we say we're preparing a student for the future, we don't always mean their future. We sometimes mean our future without recognizing it. Um, And so, you know, recognizing that the world has changed and so much is different. Um, we do need to provide students intensified supports at times, and that's okay. There are other times that we can offer them, you know, opportunities to really demonstrate their strengths and step into a leadership role. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things that's really challenging to balance is as we provide these intensified supports for students, how do we not compromise their access to the things in school they really like? And so what I mean by that is um, as, as building level administration, it's often challenging to prepare a schedule for students who do require intervention and support in this tier two that is more kind of intensified without um, removing them from things they really enjoy about learning experience at the expense of the things they find more challenging. Can I just jump in one? Because yeah. we're going we're gonna to switch, and I think it's a really good place to, to go. But I do want to add one more thing, which is it's perfectly fine for a student to be in a, a situation where they would learn better in a small group setting mm-hmm. for pullout, and they're progressing, right? We all want students to be able to migrate out of... Out of um, certain intense supports, but if it's really working, you know, like I said, like some kids end up in, you know, INRS and the INRS supports work, why get rid of them? You know, like the, the whole point here is to make sure the student is confident and is progressing. So if a student needs, you know, is tier two, mm-hmm. um, and that is really working for them and they're, they're, they're progressing and they're moving and they're gaining confidence, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean like, okay, let's take that support away right away. It might be a support and that's okay. Like that might be a support that they need and they're doing great in it, mm-hmm. and we should celebrate that because they're doing great. Well, and one of the things I want to add to that that you just cut as you as you mentioned that is 
This is a fluid process, yeah. right? Chris mentioned before, you know, the students are not just simply numbers in, in, in what we do around here. Um, I would like to hope that that's the case in every school district, and it is the truth around here. Um, this is a fluid situation, and while the current data may suggest a student needs more intensified supports in some particular area right now, they may grow in their skills and not need it. And then down the line may rep, rec, um, represent in a way that we need additional supports. Again, that's okay. Then to Chris's point, you may have a different scenario where you have a youngster who is demonstrating growth and strength, but that does not mean to remove the supports that have been put into place. Perhaps that is something they rely on. And I'll give you an example, right, um, that we often overlook. Like reading is such a fundamental, important element of what we do as humans, right? It's how we communicate information. It's how we share knowledge. Um, and I can admit I always struggled as a student when the classroom was noisy, when when we had like kind of reading, whatever the format was. And even to this day as an adult, I do, right? Like I need to find a quiet place to read. And so, you know, while that kind of straddles that line, is that a tier one intervention? Is it a tier two intervention? Like, well, it's tier one if we can make a place in the classroom or put in accommodation, in, install an accommodation where students can have a whole variety of different options, right? Perhaps headphones, things like that, that didn't exist when we were kids. Mm -hmm. um, but perhaps having a student um, work in a small group, whether it's a small counseling group, whether mm -hmm. it's a small social skills group, whether it's a small academic group, is perfectly acceptable. Um, and too frequently we associate negative a negative correlation with that, right? Like, well, why does that student need more? Why is that student different? That's okay, right? And so I think that's probably the bottom line of what I want. I hope we can get out of this conversation is part of a school's responsibility is to meet the needs of students, right? Like that's mm -hmm. kind of a baseline foundational element. Um, and so that's our responsibility. And none, none of those interventions or supports, whether it's tier one or tier two, which we've talked a little bit about today, or tier three, which we'll talk about the line down the line, have positive or negative connotations. It's what the student needs, yeah. right? And so it's, our, it's a school district's responsibility to provide structures that afford those things. And Chris, you mentioned INRS. So I, I would like us to talk a little bit about that, just for anyone who's not familiar. We've talked about INRS in previous episodes of this podcast. We talked mm -hmm. explicitly on one called Continuum of Supports, but we're going to come back to that so you can talk about it, because I know, um, I think we do it really well in certain places. Lincoln Roosevelt School, um, headed by you and Mr. Argenziano, is one of those places. So Alyssa, you looked like you wanted to jump in on Tier 2. <laughs> no, I mean, I could talk about it all day, um, but I think it is some, when you said something that stuck with me, which is the fact that sometimes when we have students who move into tier two, we notice that there is we're getting more information. And I feel like that's really valuable. Right. So you said it's not a negative. It's not a positive. You know, there's so many things that we can get from. I do see it as a positive because we are getting more information to guide our day to day with kids. And so that to me really, it just stuck with me. So I wanted to mention that. that. That's a good point. Thank you for making that correction. I do think it overall it is a positive, right? If mm -hmm. we have the opportunity to get additional information that allows the teacher of the school to provide better service or support to a student, definitely a positive. Mm -hmm. So Chris, before we get out of here, because we've been going for a while on tier yeah, one sure. and two, just kind of sum up INRS and what that process looks like um, when it's a really high functioning structure in a school, because in a lot of ways that INRS team and process really helps drive these supports when they need to go beyond tier one. Right. And, and like anything else in education, if it doesn't have an acronym, then we don't, we don't, <laughs> right. It. We need to put, <laughs> provide the glossary of acronyms. So it means uh, intervention and uh, referral services. Um, what it is, um, is the ability to kind of take kids that um, 
we want to give um, some individual attention to in tracking um, to be able to see how they're doing. Um, and what we do is um, we have some educational experts within the school, their teachers, and, and we meet um, you know, every couple of weeks, you know, sometimes a little bit more for certain students, sometimes a little bit less depending on what they want or, or what they need, really. Um, and we look at what are some interventions that can be put in. Some of those interventions are suggestions for tier one kind of type of interventions, right, for the, for the class. Mm -hmm. Some of them are closer to tier two, which can involve maybe um, – you know, referring a student to ISL services or thinking about, you know, some counseling groups for that student or some other things. And what we, you know, what we do is we, we track a lot of different types of points on that, on that student. And, and I think sometimes, and I, I try to stay away from talking about the, the numbers because I think it sometimes sounds cold. We do, we do a lot of number talk about where a student is performing, but we don't look at one number in any way, shape or form. So we look at how's that student doing socially? How's the student's grades? We have conversations with the teachers. Um, in, in many situations, we'll have conversations with the parents, um, you know, try to see what's, what's going, what's, how that student's doing at home. Um, and we just try to monitor. And, you know, as I said, stated beforehand, when we talk about like tier two or tier three interventions, if a student is INRS for the entirety that they're in school and they're happy and they're successful and they're doing well, then great, right? This is not a problem. This is a solution. All right. Awesome. So, and the, the piece I was really hoping you were going to say in there, which is what I was just writing notes to make sure I wrapped up with is again, part of the reason we're doing these conversations is the parent's role, you know, and I really like that you emphasize the parent as a part of the communication loop in that process. Um, and, you know, we've said it before in previous conversations. I know it's something that we do, um, you know, put a lot of value on and we've worked to include a district goal on is that communication loop with parents. And so, you know, the parental role in all of this is continue to encourage your child, continue to celebrate their strengths, support them when they when they're having difficulty um, and really help them recognize the importance of what being a part of a school and what the learning experience affords them. You know, um, the reality is lots of kids have um, things they would rather be doing sometimes, but um, we do our very best to try and make a school a really enjoyable experience um, and allow kids to have access to a wide variety of opportunities. And, you know, when they struggle or when they're having difficulty or for some reason feel like they can't meet with success, the best job, best thing a parent can do is maybe take them away from that stressful, frustrating moment Chris referred to before and come back to it and revisit it. Um, communicate with the teacher to share that your child is is experiencing frustration or difficulty in a certain area. Be a partner in um, identifying potential remedies or solutions um, and also be patient with that process, right? Um, we talk a lot about that data gathering and that really is important. I like Chris's distinction that, you know, there is a difference between data-driven and data-informed. Mm -hmm. We use data to inform next steps, um, and oftentimes, you know, that takes takes some time, right? And so kind of a quick summary of Tier 1 and Tier 2 here today. Um, we'll do another episode to kind of talk about, well, what happens when you've gone from Tier 1, which are kind of those universal supports, around 85 80% of students can meet with success and kind of, be, you know, really move forward there. We need some more intensified supports in, in tier two, which generally meets about 10 to 15% of the population. But there is a smaller population of students who even those more intensified supports require additional assistance or different um, differentiation strategies, different scaffold. Um, so we'll do a future episode on what, what it looks like to move from tier two to tier three. Um, but the bottom line is wherever your child is performing in any of these areas, socially, academically, emotionally, 
Um, let's, you know, really continue to be partners. Um, if you're not from our school district, partner with your school district to really celebrate um, your child's strengths. Um, being a child is a really exciting opportunity and experience that is 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 fleeting. It's gone too fast. And so if we can all work together to help child recognize the value in what they can achieve by being a, par- a positive part of a school community um, where they learn to overcome struggles, where they learn to celebrate their successes, um, really be a part of a community, these are the things that will really help them in the future. If you have questions about what Tier 1 supports look like, don't hesitate to reach out to your teacher, your principal, a supervisor, administrator. If you have questions about potential Tier 2 supports or what that looks like for your child, again, please don't hesitate. Reach out to your, your, um, the staff in your school um, and be a part of that conversation. All right. Closing, any class thoughts from you guys? You're certainly both um, experts in this area. I think for me, just um, one of the things that comes to mind is to remember that one size doesn't fit all and that we focus on every student every day and um, continue to work with us so that we can make sure that your student um, gets what they need. Awesome. There's a, uh, actually, sorry, now that you remind me, the great YouTube video uh, to look at, which which talks about that, uh, about how the myth of average, I would look at the myth of average. I think it's a great, you know, it's not going to give you a whole bunch of information, but it really tells you about this problem of um, when the Air Force was trying to design a plane and they were designing it for the average person to fly it. And no human being could fly the plane because no human being is average. Mm. So they had to think again about how you designed a plane for it to actually fly where all these different types of people could fly the plane. All right. Well, there you have it. So keep an eye out for that video. So uh, we appreciate you listening. If you have questions, reach out. We are absolutely here to help as partners in this journey. Have a great day.